0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I say a little prayer that I can do a, um, an introduction that um, is appropriate for a podcast, and I pray I can do a good job on this one to, um, to kind of cue this up for you, our listeners. Um, my guest on today's podcast in my home is my friend, Adam. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you. Um, Adam, um, and you'll learn this as part of the podcast, we're just going to call Adam Adam today. He has a full name, uh, but some of my guests in the past have felt it was best that um, they share their story just with the first name, and that still makes it a valid, authentic story. And that's what Adam is doing. Um, A little bit about Adam. Adam is a gay Latter-day Saint. Um, He's in his 40s. He's been um, married for 26 years. Him and his husband live um, in the United States. Adam uh, attends church, has a testimony of the church enough to attend. He has two callings that don't require a temple recommend. Um, he has supportive local leaders. Um, and, so he's, and he's also a survivor of conversion therapy, electric shock therapy. So it's maybe a trigger warning for you listeners. It's the first time I've had someone on the podcast that's going to spend um, some time sharing their experience in this space. It's really brave of Adam to do this. He is not doing this to be disrespectful of the church. He is doing it to, um, part of his healing journey, probably help other people that have gone through conversion therapy, thought therapy, and also just build more understanding within Latter-day Saint community of the road that some um, gay and lesbian Latter-day Saints walked. Um, Adam's in his 40s, as I mentioned, so this isn't something generally that younger um, LGBTQ Latter-day Saints are experiencing, but it was part of Adam's experience. And and part of this story might be just how to heal from trauma and pain and things that are unnecessary. And so some of the principles that Adam shares may help you as you've been a survivor of things that were not helpful to you in your life. Um, I've learned a little bit about electric shock therapy, and it's really sobering and really unfortunate and very painful. And it takes us back to an era where we thought that you could change someone's sexual orientation. So Adam has spent a couple months preparing on this outline. Um, He spent a lot of prayer. Um, It's deeply, it's really brave of him to do this. Um, Somebody I deeply admire and respect. We've been changing, exchanging emails for over five years and um, Adam felt like it was the time that he could share his story on the spirit of helping others and helping us create Zion and helping us do better to support LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Um, Is that okay for an introduction, Adam? Uh, Yes. Okay. I will just turn it over to you with a prayer in my heart and a a prayer of gratitude also for you being willing to share your story. Thank you.
1: Uh, Yeah. I've written everything out because there's a lot of detail, um, a lot of quotes I wanted to use to help. explain it and explain why somebody would be willing to, to do that. Uh, I want to begin first with a statement from the church that was dated October of 2019, uh, quote, family services has a longstanding and express policy against using therapies that seek to repair, convert, or change sexual orientation, such as from homosexual to heterosexual research demonstrates that electric shock, aversion, and other analogous therapies are ineffective and harmful to youth who experience same-sex attraction. Those, including youth, who seek therapies that constitute sexual orientation change efforts will not receive them from family services counselors, end quote. Uh, The word research is the word that stands out the most to me in that one. Um, Although I do not know how many men were part of this research, uh, well, what I believe was research, uh, I do know that I was one of them. The way my mind works is I want all the information for anything that I'm working on. And once I started down this path of trying to understand exactly what this therapy was and how it happened um, and how it was so wrong, I couldn't stop until I found an answer. I want to express that this is not anti-church. This isn't pro-church. This is simply my story of going through a very specific therapy set up by my bishop through LDS Social Services from 1993 to 1998. And there were other leaders involved at the same during those years. Uh, there might be a few things I say that might make you feel like I'm going in one direction or the other, but the intention is to put the information I have found out there for others who went through this program or know somebody who did. I wanted to present this very sensitive topic in a way that's factual with documents from church resources, uh, mainly ones that I found from BYU archives, as well as two dissertations uh, at the Harold B. Lee Library. There are three reasons I'm telling the story today. The first is to pass along information I have found over the past few years to other men who experienced this form of therapy who have or haven't begun their own process of working through the damage this therapy causes. For years, I functioned without giving this much thought. And then when it, it did become obvious that this is something that was holding, holding me back, I started looking into it. So I do know that there are other people out there with different levels of acceptance of, of what they went through. The second reason is to help the immediate family members parents, siblings, children, and yes, wives understand what their family member experienced while attempting to change their sexual orientation through LDS social services, now called LDS family services. The final reason is to hopefully help church members have a better understanding of what this was like for a faithful young man trying their hardest to adapt to church standards. Another thing I want to mention is that I'm not going to mention specific dates, locations, or times other than what I've already done, or names of those involved. Um, with the therapy, unless quoting from documents they published or were mentioned in. For my instance, I think these were men and one woman in my case who thought they were doing what they were called to do. These were loving, kind people who I truly believe thought this was their work and that they were going to help, I'm going to use the word cure, um, men and some women who were going through this at this time. Uh, I want to keep this during the time of my conversion therapy to when I call the quits. This was about a five-year period. Uh, a lot of the things I'm going to be mentioning, it's going to be from that perspective. It might not be how I feel today, but I want you to understand where I was. The next set of quotes come from scholarshiparchive.byu. BYU, uh, BYU archives have a set number of documents released under Issues in Religion and Psychology, Volume 19, Number 1. The first document I was shown by a friend was Interview. And an LDS per- reparative therapy approach for male homosexuality. This was where I learned or when I began to learn or understand or believe that the therapy I went through was a program put together by the church along with BYU psychology department. This was not known during my initial therapy. I was under the impression at that time a freshly turned 18 year old that this is just something that therapists knew how to do. Some knew you know, better or, or whatnot, but I didn't realize this was an actual in my opinion, program based off of what I read. Uh, this first article was written in a formative of an interview between the editor and Aideen Bird. Aideen Bird worked for the church. Uh, he had a couple different titles, but the one I found was director of clinical training for LDS social services. And at the time, the document says, quote, Dr. Aideen Bird is assistant commissioner evaluation and training for LDS social services. In addition, he is on the clinical faculty department of psychology BYU, as well as clinical faculty at the university of Utah. Quote, I am convinced from both the spiritual and clinical perspective that homosexuality is not an immutable condition. These men need to understand that their homosexual attractions are symptomatic of legitimate emotional needs that can be met appropriately. They need to develop non sexual fulfilling relationships with heterosexual men to become more solid in their own masculinity, feeling more secure in who they are. A very difficult task is assisting them in integrating the seemingly incongruous parts of themselves. Journal-keeping seems to be a must with these men. It is a valuable source of information for both the client and the therapist. They submit journal entries, and I provide feedback in clarifying or a questioning way. Many of these men monitor their thoughts through this journal process. They practice skills such as assertiveness in appropriate settings. Most rebuild relationships with significant men in their lives, such as with their fathers. Many find, through sports programs, ways to feel more solid in their masculinity, which was often lacking in their early years. I should note here that I've never worked successfully with an LDS man who has homosexual struggles without a close collaborative relationship with a bishop or stake president. For LDS men, there are many spiritual issues, and these priesthood leaders have, a, have had a significant impact on the healing process. End quote. When I read this, it just this was the program that I went through. Um, I still have my journals, and I'm looking forward to the day I can burn them. They are a source of pain, embarrassment, and shame. They've been helpful with this because I've been able to go back and pull from it uh, to give a better perspective about where I was. The next part mentions potential causation for homosexual attractions. This mentions, uh, this matches what I was told by the elderly social ther- therapist. I remember one of the biggest questions I had was why? And then, quote, for a variety of reasons, which may include early emotional detachment of voice from their fathers and or trauma from sexual abuse, the same-sex attraction becomes sexualized, preventing a normal transition. In essence, homosexuality is a pathological adapt- adaptation resulting from being stuck in this process una- and unable to make the normal transition to the next developmental stage. The next one, uh, the next entry is from BYU Archives again. Again, they released a series of, of I believe it was five um, papers. This one was called Homosexuality, and LDS Perspective. And this was from Ronald D. Bingham and Richard W. Potts. And it starts off with uh, the question, what factors appear to cause or at least influence a susceptibility toward homosexual attractions and tendencies? Quote, the church's earlier position statement from LDS Church, 1981, uh, indicated church recognition that homosexuality seems to be influenced in part By unhealthy emotional development. The first four elements below were listed in that document as possible contributing factors. The fifth and sixth elements below are added by authors of the paper to reflect the statements from church leaders. The first reason being dysfunctional family background. Second being poor relationship with peers. The next one's unhealthy sexual attitudes. The next one's early homosexual experience. The next one's selfishness. And then quote, in a BYU devotional address, Elder Packer, 1978, expressed a possible link between selfishness and homosexual behavior. Quote, have you explored the possibility that the cause, when found, would turn out, would turn out to be a very typical form of selfishness, selfishness in a very subtle form. Uh, end quote. And that was
2: meant as a question, the last part. The next was biological and genetic influences. Quote, some
1: church leaders have strongly condemned simple biological or genetic deterministic explanations for homosexuality, that biological or genetic factors completely cause, determine, or predestine homosexual behavior. This is from Elder Oaks in 1987. Um, and we, Part of that was recording Elder Pack from 1976. However, these church leaders have also indicated a recognition of complexity of the problems associated with homosexual behavior and have not closed the door on, on the possibility that Biological or genetic factors who predispose or make someone more susceptible than their peers to homosexual attractions, which place them at a higher risk for involvement in homosexual behavior. End quote. So in the 19, in the early 1990s and late 1980s, this had to be a secret. Um, from my perspective, and when I say had to be from my perspective, this had to be a secret. Uh, this was not something a member could speak about openly. Uh, it's very. Uh, it's very bad, shame-based, and a lot of fear. Um, what they say now in conference is very different. The tone is much softer and loving. Some would disagree, but I don't. For decades of my life, I've remembered what the teenage me heard throughout growing up about gay people. These are things that have stuck with me and caused the great internal shame. These are the things that I'm still working through now. I can't heal... The me of today with today's words without dealing with the pain of the words from the past. And this is just something I can't turn off. Some of the below quotes, while they these may be difficult to hear with today's understanding, are reasons why I was convinced I could change. These are all from prophets, apostles, and a member of the seventy. They're all also before before I turned eighteen, which was would have been in nineteen ninety three. So these are the words that are chiseled into my brain for my yes. youth. It might sound like I'm going on too much about this, but again to understand why you would go through the repair therapy and keep moving forward with it. You have to hear these and understand that these are the words truly that were in my mind as I was going through this, this therapy. The first ones are going to be from president Kimball. This is from 1982. This abnormal involvement with one, with a person of one's own sex can be only barren and desolate, having for its purpose, only temporary physical satisfaction. There is no future in it, but only a stirring moment and a dead past. There can be no posterity, no family life, no permanent association, and of course, of course, nothing that can give eternal joy. It is lonely because it is wrong and because it is selfish. Then 1982, President Kimball, homosexuality and like practices are deep sins, they can be cured. They can be forgiven. Remember, the Lord loves you. The church loves you. We are most anxious to assist you. Next quote from President Kimball. Homosexual practices are enslaving. There are those who tell you there is no cure and thus weaken your resolves and add to your frustration. They can be cured. They can be eventually forgiven. Your problem can be solved. A homosexual can change himself. So long as you tolerate this gay world and it's degenerate people, you are in a very desperate situation and you are playing with the fire just like a child who might be pounding a bomb with a hammer. Homosexuality, homosexuality can be cured if the battle is well organized and pursued vigorously and continuously. President Benson, 1985. Certainly it can become overcome, For there are numerous happy people who were once involved in its clutches who have since completely transformed their lives. Therefore, to say to, to those who say this practice, excuse me, Therefore, to those who say that this practice or any other evil is incurable, I respond: How can you say the door cannot be? Apologize. How can you say the door cannot be opened till your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised, till your muscles are sore? It can be done. 1981, Herman J. Rector, General Conference: If children have a happy family experience, they will not want to be homosexuals which I am sure is an acquired addiction just as drugs, alcohol, and pornography are. Dallin H. Oaks. First, I believe, I didn't put the year, I apologize, I believe this was 1986. Uh, First, I believe in retaining criminal penalties on sex crimes such as adultery, fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, and other forms of deviant sexual behavior. Next quote. Dallin H. I believe, 1988, um, it would be desirable to permit employers to exclude homosexuals from influential positions in media, literature, and entertainment, since those jobs influence the tone and ideals of society. For the Strength of the Youth, 1990, homosexual and lesbian activities are sinful and an abomination to the Lord.
2: The Lord specifically forbids sex perversion, such as homosexuality, rape, and incest. End quote so when you're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen,
1: eighteen, hearing these types of quotes, um, loving the church
2: and wanting to be um, a good Mormon boy at that time, is the word we would have used um, hearing these or reading these, uh, you know being that fourteen fifteen year old hearing your teachers read these quotes it's awful to go through that so you're willing to do anything and you want to do anything you want to you want to be what you're being taught to be a good mormon man with a wife and six children and okay in the statement uh, there's another one i apologize
1: understanding and helping those who have Homosexual problems. This was the church in 1992. Members are instructed to seek the inspired guidance of church leaders. However, they also suggest change is possible. There are those who have ceased their homosexual behavior and overcome such thoughts and feelings. These quotes, along with Priesthood Blessings saying, I would change if I worked hard and had faith, made me put all of my effort into what I was seeing as a miracle. The goal wasn't to be attracted to all women, I just needed to be attracted to one. On a scale of sexuality, I was a 10 and still am. To this day, I have no idea what it felt like to be sexually attracted to a woman. As much as I thought I was talking myself into it, it never took. Um, I'm reading these to help everyone understand what I was hearing in my youth and why I hated myself enough to do anything that was asked, suggested, or recommended. And rereading my journals from that time period, my entries are frequently based on my testimony of the church. I wanted to be as perfect as possible in an effort to make up for my deviant nature. I wasn't perfect. I made plenty of, plenty of mistakes, but I just kept thinking if I could just be perfect, this was going to at least make up for this, this horrible part of my being. When I look back on my first journal entries at that time, after I spoke with my Bishop, I told him immediately after my 18th birthday, because I knew that at that point he could tell my, my family, um, I was told how lucky I was that somebody had, the church had somebody not too far away, and we can get this problem fixed. Journal entry. Bishop called me into his office. He said the problem is able to be fixed. He said that there is someone in, I've taken the city out, who can fix, who can help fix this. The miracle I've been praying for is finally here. He said, it didn't have to be this way, and plenty of people have been fixed. When I started the program, I started with the belief that this was what my Heavenly Father in Christ wanted me to do. I truly saw this as a miracle that I've been praying for and fasted for ever since I realized that what I felt didn't align with what the church taught. I realized this wasn't going to happen overnight like I had hoped. But I was more than, more than happy and willing to do anything that they told me to do so I could make this problem go away. I consented to everything. This was never forced on me. This was never something that the church said I had to do. When I first started the sessions, I was obviously very nervous, scared, and deeply ashamed that this was something I was even having to do
0: in the first place.
1: I remember in the first session, I asked him why this happened. And he reiterated basically what I read earlier about how you have his description was you have two pillars of emotional needs that you have to have met one is the feminine and one is the masculine. And if you're not receiving the love and affection from each pillar, there becomes a deficit. And then that's when the one leans and they intersect. He said that when this happens and puberty kicks in, the mind gets confused and it's saying, I'm not ready for this next step because I'm
2: deficient in this other one area. And that's when the homosexual attractions can take over. Given my upbringing and some abuses that I had, i had experienced this all aligned. The
1: current understanding among the vast majority of mental health professionals is that no, this is not what people are gay. This is not what causes same-sex attraction. However, at the time, I was a very young 18-year-old and just naive. Uh, I entered this program completely, like I said, willing to do what they asked me to do. The first thing I was to do was to start to read some books. The first one was called You Don't Have to Be Gay by J.A. Conrad. This book was written as a story of letters between friends. And one of them was gay and sad and depressed, and the other one was gay, with, had been gay but was able to change and move on to a heterosexual life. To say I devoured this book is an understatement. I read it multiple times. I used it as a journal. I used it as a way to try to connect with, with, what, with what was being taught in the sessions. The book, along with many others, were almost always with me hidden. I didn't want to be able to see them or find them because this was part of a deep shame of the process of the process. The therapy started out with three times a week and then we would change. Um, Throughout the process of of what needed to happen. The next quote is from one of the 1993 documents, and it has two parts which I want to focus on. The first being the part about relationship with the therapist, and the second about the behavioral techniques. This is interview and LDS, the reparative therapy approach for male homosexuality. Editor, what in session strategies and techniques do you use to promote client insight and change? Dr. Bird, I employ many behavioral behavioral, cognitive, and effective strategies. These strategies include reframing, role-playing, re-experiencing, and many behavioral techniques. However, the characteristics of the therapist seem to be more important. Often, the therapeutic relationship represents the first genuine relationship that these men have had. A trusting, honest relationship seems to provide a needed safe setting where intimate issues and sensitive, sensitive feelings can be expressed and explored. The next one was Review of Reparative Therapy by Mel, of male Homosexuality, A New Clinical Approach by Joseph Nicolosi. Um, I note, he is not a member of the church, but some of the information I found shows that they did work together. Quote, the therapist is characterized as a mentor, leader, and coach, being both supportive and confrontive, like a salient father. End quote. The part about the therapist rings true. I, I put a lot of hope in my first therapist. Uh, there were a total of three. I saw my first therapist as the answer to my prayers and felt incredibly blessed for every second that I was able to spend with him. This became the top priority of my life, even dropping off college in order to focus on the reading and the therapy. I saw him next to Christ as my savior. He was the one that was going to pull me through this. He talked about me becoming not too dependent on him. Well, I think I did a good job of not doing this. And thankfully there was no attraction to him. Reading these statements, even decades later, hurt reading all the documents I have found within the past year, have felt a little bit like the rug being pulled out from under me and given me what I call a little bit of the Truman Show feeling. If you've seen that movie, you understand. Um, Therapy was no joke. This was intense. Uh, This was very difficult. There were many obstacles in participating to this therapy. I'm not going to go into all of them, but anytime an obstacle came up, I just saw this as Satan's attempt to stop my progress. I would somehow manage to get around any issue and keep moving forward. Knowing that the reward from this would be, of course, becoming heterosexual, getting to go on my mission, getting married
2: and having children.
1: I started shortly after, like I said, my 18th birthday. I asked, you know, how many people are able to be changed? How long does this take? I had a lot of questions. Uh, I remember being told, um, the 11 out of people or 11 out of 12 people are able to be changed. I remember being told on average 18 months to two years. And so in my mind, I would hopefully be able to change by the time I was 20 and that I could go on my mission. And the goal is to not be the 12th person. Since I worked with different therapists over time, this is, this is out of, uh, this is out of the, the chrono- chronology on this is not same, but I wanted to just kind of go into the different parts of the behavioral exercises. So, if this doesn't make sense, I apologize. But since I worked with three different therapists, I wanted to make sure for privacy that no dates, names were were mentioned. We did a lot of different behavioral uh, exercises: desensitization, covert sensitization. Um, I'm nervous, so I'm mispronouncing all these words. So, hang in there, people. Uh, aversion therapy. Um, one of the behavior exercises I did was to write down all the men in my life that I can remember and where they would fall, whether a brother, friend, uncle, father, leader, um, role model, which category did they fall in? And then we talked about the relationship I had with them and talk about, did I feel accepted by them? Did I feel like I was rejected by them? We go through this and analyze the relationships to see where the rejection was and where the acceptance was and focus on the acceptance, and learn to look over the rejection. Obviously going through many of your male relationships that you've ever had,
2: is difficult. The things we looked at were examples I had growing up in my life. With the end of these being, the Savior should be the ultimate example. There were other books that I was given to read.
1: Um, Some were much more practical and some much more uh, scriptural based. One of the books I found um, later on in, in the last year was a 1978 dissertation at the BYU library. This is as an adult looking back, trying to understand what these behavioral exercises were. Uh, this is Treatment of Homosexuality, a Reanalysis and Synthesis of Outcome Studies by Elizabeth C. James. This one is not online. Most of the dissertations are online. You can find them. This one, you actually have to go to the BYU library, the Herald B. Lee Library, and ask for it. Um, this book was probably the most difficult to find and with good reason. It was and is still extremely painful to read. It goes through different techniques used and gives a background history of where they came from. I went and took pictures of all the pages since they couldn't check the book out and I don't live in Utah. I, there was one very embarrassing behavioral technique. I just never knew it had a name. When I found the below quote earlier this year, I shared it with my current therapist, Bishop and a few close family members, friends who know about the therapy. I've slowly opened up to more people about this. And when I found the below,
2: again, I just didn't know this had a name uh, and it was hard to read. I wanted to share this with them as proof.
1: I don't know why. I just feel like I need to show people here. This is what I found. And this, all these things I've been telling you, you know, bishop, friend, therapist to hear, this is, this is it.
2: Um,
1: I hate this quote. There's so many words in this that I, I truly hate. This is, this is awful, um, but this is
2: part of the therapy. So, quote, uh, masturbatory conditioning, also known as
1: orgasmic reconditioning, is probably the most common method of pairing sexual arousal, arousal with appropriate stimuli. Generally, the subject masturbates either to fantasies that successfully approximate the desired heterosexual stimulus, or to homosexual fantasies that shift to heterosexual just prior to orgasm. Although this approach may be insensitive to the value specified on pages 10 through 12, the rationale for it is given as including the extinction of erotic arousal to homosexual stimuli by not permitting such fantasies to accompany orgasm. The desensitization of anxiety to heterosexual stimuli by substituting the more powerful incompatible response of sexual arousal that is associated with orgasm, the development of erotic response, apologize, the development of erotic responsibility to socially acceptable stimuli and the reconceptualization of homosexuality in its treatment as a simple conditioning process rather than a more complex and pervasive characterological problem.
2: Reading socially acceptable stimuli, reading the subject it was just painful. For me, I was told by the therapist that this was
1: purpose over pleasure. The goal was to move the clock back maybe a second or two, and then gradually more and more. 10 seconds was the goal, meaning I could have a man in my thoughts. But as, a, as I was learning more about my body and timing and how, That worked. Again, very naive 18-year-old.
2: Learning how to get to the point of no return and then switch to a woman. I was told to experiment with different types
1: of women. Blonde, brunette, short hair, longer hair, more masculine women, et cetera. Again, the goal wasn't to be attracted to all women, just one. My mental health. Throughout the conversion therapy process, my mental health was taking a deep, deep dive. These are some of the journal entries throughout my time of doing the therapy.
2: I'm really depressed today. I don't know what else to do. I just want to die. Next quote. I don't want to live. I can't go on like this. It physically hurts. Next quote. I don't
1: understand what I'm going through. I feel like dying. Next. I really wish God would take me home. I wish I could die. I've been having fantasies about what it would be like to die and thinking of how I could do it. And the last one,
2: lately I've been feeling really close to death. feels like a part of me is already there and just waiting for the rest of me to get there. The next part, um,
1: uh, electroshock therapy, was first recorded happening in BYU in a 1976 dissertation by Max Ford McBride. The title is Effect of Visual Stimuli and Electric Aversion Therapy. Uh, Before I, I want to say that President Oaks said in 2019 that this didn't happen while he was president at at BYU. This is tricky and I've tried to figure out how to word this because 1976 is, he was the president at the time. And this is where we just give grace and say that we understand that President Oaks was a president of a major university and very busy. And just simply not expected to know about every experiment. Um, the dissertation gives the information. It speaks for itself. Um, I've wanted to find documents regarding the 90s version of this, but I haven't been able to. Uh, That being said, I've had a chance to speak with a few other people who went through this 90s version of electroshock therapy. I've been very hesitant about what I was going to say. Again, the feeling of needing proof for every part of this is something that I don't understand. But with each step of the way, when I found a document or part of a dissertation, it has helped immensely as it somehow validated the experience.
2: Um,
1: So I'm going to say this is all allegedly and based on my opinion. Um, Since I don't know the people personally that I spoke with, simply find them through support groups uh, or other times maybe they mentioned they went through this. So I have no way to confirm those stories. Um, so again, these alleged experiences based on my opinion, um, each of the stories was very similar, which was really, like, I felt horrible for these men as I was hearing these stories and then
2: recognizing that they were mine. Um, this did not happen through LDL social services.
1: Uh, everyone I communicated with was referred to by their church leader. I originally put in detailed descriptions of what it was like, but decided to keep it simple for my sake and for yours. The basics. Um, pornographic magazines or videos reviewed or fantasies were discussed, and then the shock would occur.
2: Um, there's obviously more, than it, more to it than just that, but I think that's sufficient. Uh, I said I would do anything to, uh, to change. And this is what, sorry, at the time this was happening,
1: I said I would do anything to change. And this is what Christ needs me to do to align myself with him. Then I'll do it. Uh, There was a a really big sense of urgency to do anything to get, get to change. Again, I was afraid of being the 12th person. This was something seen as holding back my eternal progression. And I had a very strong
2: testimony at the time, although I didn't realize it. One of the things with the therapy in general is
1: there was pressure to work hard enough. Um, I would pay a co-, co payment each time I went, depending on the therapist. Um, I had one tell me that, and again, I wasn't perfect when I was doing this. There were some times I just needed to take a break
2: and it was just too much. And
1: I was told that if I wasn't working hard enough, I was wasting the Lord's money as tithing was being used to pay for this. Um, I was told by one therapist that I don't get two steps forward, one step back. For me, it's two steps forward and then it's 11 back. Um, So the the pressure to focus on this was, was there. And it was something that, again, I was an adult. I take full responsibility for my part in wanting to do this. And um, going back to the first quote I gave, the church says it has a longstanding policy against these types of therapies. They've been proven to be ineffective and harmful. Trying to reconcile my opinion of being one of these uh, research, one of, one of the ones who participate in the research um, has been very hard, um, especially now seeing that the church says it's harmful. Yes, I can say it's incredibly harmful and I'm still... Dealing with this, trying to work through this, decades later, and the only thing that brings me some piece of peace with it is that you know, at some point, the, I have to be very careful with this because I, I don't want to say the church. I want to make sure that we're making a distinction between the gospel and the church and leaders. It's at the time I remember being raised thinking, no, if, if they said something, we did it. Um, now, in my opinion, I'm seeing it much more. You know, the church is led by imperfect men and they can make mistakes. Um, it simply wasn't my understanding as a child and as a youth.
2: So to see that as an adult, it's been something that I've really had to, to try to reconcile as this. It's just, it, it really affects being able to trust the priesthood. Um, why couldn't they've had these answers in the nineties? Why did we have to go through this?
0: What
1: is this what Christ wanted us to go through to understand that? No, this doesn't work. Um, It's, it it plays with your head when you're trying to be, um, when you're trying to come to peace with your, your faith. It's my faith is a part of me. It's, it's a very large part of me. So what I say now is, and this is, I appreciate I'm saying to you sometimes, I listen to some of the people that are on your podcast who are younger, who are going on their missions as openly gay men. And it's... I'm very
2: happy for them. Um, it's very... I'm very thankful that they don't have to go through this. Um, uh, I
1: would have... I wish I could have been one of them that didn't go through this process. Um, but I think to myself, current generation... They don't have to go through this process. Um, uh,
2: But the feeling of being spiritual collateral damage is pretty intense. Um, I went on my mission. I came back. I began attending the YSA award. Um, Still
1: gay, Nothing, nothing changed. I really had hoped that it would change on my mission. I, I was looking forward to my mission as being some time where I didn't have to think about this and just put that off.
2: Um, there were a few therapy sessions on the mission. So I feel like that detracted from it. Um,
1: so I came home and there was one church friend that I came out, uh, came out to. Uh, she saw the conflict that I was going through trying to follow what I was being told, mainly to get married to a woman. Um, She was, throughout all of this, I can pinpoint people who carried me through, and she was definitely one of them. Uh, I was very depressed trying to, first off, find a way to to start my life, trying to figure out which, which path. The bishop I had at the time, And told me that I needed to get married as soon as I could because once I knew a woman, the rest of it would come into place and change. I remember telling him that, okay, this doesn't sound snarky. I don't mean for it to, but this was just at the time I told him, Your daughter's about to turn 18. I'm going to ask her on a date. And he said, Not my daughter. I said to him, That's my point. It's always going to be somebody's daughter that I'm doing this to. I'm taking away her agency. I'm paraphrasing, but this was what the conversation was. I asked him if I should tell the woman, and I'm going to marry that I'm
2: gay," he said. "No, because she would doubt your priesthood authority. Doubt your priesthood authority."
1: What he said set me up for one of my deepest and darkest depressions. Um, I left the church that day, and while driving home, made a decision in my life. At this point, I'd put five years into changing my sexual orientation; it hadn't changed. And I, I just didn't see how I was going to make this work.
2: When you become truly suicidal, the logic goes out the window. <sighs> it was a Sunday. And as I was driving home, I was trying to
1: think, how was I going to do this? What did I have in my apartment that I could make this happen? And then I realized the way I wanted to do it, the way that I felt comfortable doing it, I didn't have what I needed. And I needed to stop at the store. Again, logic is gone at this point. It was a Sunday, and I didn't want to break the Sabbath, especially to buy things that I need to commit suicide. And I thought to myself, just go home, get everything in order. and The next morning, take care of it. Thankfully, the next morning I woke up, and that phase had passed. <sighs> the company I worked for at the time, to get a transfer, it would take you know a couple of months. I knew that something needed to change. I went into work. I started looking for jobs. And I found one in a different city, about eight, years, eight hours away. I told my friend, she said, this is going to take a while. I applied on a Monday. I had an interview on Wednesday. I got the job offer on a Thursday. And on Friday, I was driving up to look for an apartment. I prayed about it. And I felt like this is Heavenly Father's answer. You just need to step away. Um,
2: when I left, it was... I knew that I was stepping away and I, I knew that I was stepping away from the church.
1: And I thought to myself, give it six months and see where you're at. And if it's as awful
2: as you think it's going to be, then it in your life. Uh, I moved to Atlanta and at the time,
1: things were a little bit more segregated with gay and, and straight people. Um, this was nothing like I thought it was going to be. um, there were book clubs, cooking clubs, hiking clubs, just every type of club you can imagine. It was, it was wonderful. I met other gay people and I came out and I learned I didn't have to be so scared of what this was. Um, the fears I had of what it meant to be a gay person, you know, everybody would die of AIDS. Again, this is an 80s, 90s upbringing and that this would be awful and sad and a, a depressing life. I was able to build a, a strong friend group Some were gay, some were straight, but the straight ones were open and accepting. And it was the first time that I really
2: began to come to peace and find happiness. Within weeks of moving there, all suicidal
1: thoughts that I never thought would go away were gone. I remember taking a razor from uh, one of my father's bows at the age of 12 to my wrist in a closet. Yes, I see the irony, the joke. But I was in the closet with a razor um, and putting it to my wrists and just imagining it just do this. And then at 14 and different ages, really be into that place where I just need to end this. But again,
2: living life without those thoughts first time was amazing. In a year or two,
1: I think it was maybe 18 months, I met person that would now become my husband. And I started building a life. We would eventually marry marry once it became legal. And I finally had what I was told I would never have. This was not easy. When I left the church, I also left behind many friendships and family. Facebook wasn't a thing, so you couldn't track somebody down. You couldn't Google them. So if you moved and you changed your number, you didn't tell people, you could essentially disappear. And that's what I did. I felt like it would be easier to start fresh and just have a memory of these friendships and family members versus go through the rejection, um, which is something that was a very real thing that happened to others at that time. Years later, about 18 years later, one day I woke up with the feeling that it was time to go back to church. And I fought it for months. I saw no reason to go back down that incredibly painful dead-end road. I eventually told my husband, that I was thinking about going back to church. He knew the story of my upbringing and pain. I didn't ever really go into detail with him about some of it because I was trying to leave this behind. I went to church that day and my plan was to show up right at 9 a.m. and then leave the second amen was said and only attend sacrament meeting. That's what I did. and I did that for the first couple of months. I would show up and leave immediately after. Going to church then was not easy. It is still is not easy to this day. That being said, it was awkward, painful, and lovely all at once. I did a really good job of keeping distance from people until one Sunday where I got a tap on the shoulder and it was the first person saying hi to me and introducing themselves. It was a mom, her husband, and their child. I was caught off guard and didn't know what to say, and I'm sure I came across very awkward and cold. Um, I just needed to get out. In the coming weeks, I would feel like, okay, I need to start going to the second and third hour. I kept pushing back on it. One Sunday, I would actually walk around the the halls after sacrament just to see the rest of of the building and imagine myself staying. I did that for a couple of weeks and eventually went to third hour, was introduced to, I believe it was the second council on the bishopric. And then I went to the priesthood meeting and introduced a few more people. And that's when I realized, okay, if you're going to do this, you need to talk to the bishop first. And I'm sure I'm going to be told not to come back and it's going to be fine, but just maybe this will end it. I walked up to him and I introduced myself and said I need to make an appointment, thinking it would take a couple of weeks. And he said that one of his appointments just canceled and I can meet him in five minutes. Um, I gave him the basics. I didn't go into too much detail. I was a member. I resigned years ago. I'm gay and I'm married. This is who I am. I told him if he wanted, I could stop attending or go to a different ward. No harm, no foul. We're fine. I won't tell anybody. And I can I can stop going. He said, I want you to fill Free to attend anything you want along with your husband. And if anyone says or does anything that makes you feel uncomfortable or unwelcome to please come, him, tell him and he would remind them what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. It's in that moment that I felt like, okay, this is a word I can, I can attend. I gave myself a rule that I would attend as long as the suicidal thoughts didn't come back. And I began to make this incredibly difficult, difficult process of attending church. Um,
2: trying to say this in a way of where it doesn't do. Going to church sometimes feels like what it would
1: feel like going back to an abuser's home. And I know that sounds a little dramatic, but that's what it feels like.
2: Um, to this day, I, I sit with a friend and her family and I think she's caught on that if I get there five minutes before I'm having a good day, the majority of the time I'm walking in just before 9am. A uh, few years after attending church, I started realizing that
1: some things weren't, weren't right. Things weren't feeling right. And instead of stopping, to, uh, stopping attending, I thought it would be important to find a, a therapist. I wanted to find an LDS therapist, but not went through LDS family services for obvious reasons. I wanted somebody who understood the language of what it means to be LDS. I didn't want to have to train somebody on why just going to another church doesn't work. And it took a while while to find the right one. I interviewed people in Utah, all over uh, at this point. Zoom and telehealth made this process wonderful. A lot of different options were opened up to me. I really thought four to six months would, is what I would need to to work through everything. We're going on three years. Um, When I first started in the conversion therapy, past sexual abuses were discussed. However, in my opinion, it wasn't discussed in a way to help help from them, but only to show how early childhood sexual abuse is part of what maybe made me gay. For example, you're introduced to sexual acts at such a young age by a man, so that's what you thought you are supposed to to do, and that's what's supposed to happen. Fortunately with my story, there were three different people who throughout my childhood uh, were sexual abusers. Um, There was a general conference talk that years ago, that basically says victims of abuse need to eventually take part, their, uh, take their part of the
2: repentance process.
1: Uh, this was damaging. This, this has always made me feel that even as a four, five-year-old, there was some part of it that was my fault. Still working through that. I loved when we had our, we just got our new apostle. I've listened to his conference talk many times, multiple times a week sometimes. Uh, the part where he says it was not will never be your fault it was quite healing. One of the things that kept me, that kept coming up in current therapy was a conversion therapy. I did not expect this. I, I just thought there were other things I needed to work on, but denial is a real thing. And it, I just didn't realize how much it affected me. It felt like the rubble onion with layers and more layers being peeled back, thinking it was going to be done. And then another issue. And then another another issue, I'd go to my journals and I would would feel like I was there again going through these behavioral exercises. The shame of it, the massively embarrassing parts of the therapy. This is when I began trying trying to understand how this happened. What were they thinking? What was the data that they were giving? The who, the what, the when, the where, the why? When I found all the documents that, in my opinion, clearly showed I was part of a program designed by a few within the church, with the assumption that this was something that could change. I was devastated. I felt like a guinea pig. Again, spiritual collateral damage. I would look at the names of the people who would write or have part of these documents, and then I would Google them and find more information, and then then more. I've been able to find other men who went through this program and share some of the documents. And one of these men that went through it about the same time that I did Who did it, say, quote, the right way, which means he married a woman in the temple and has children and didn't tell her. When he finally did tell her years into the marriage, she was obviously devastated. When I showed him these documents and papers, he said that he needed to show his wife and his family members. He's still deeply in the closet. And he said he feels like his wife and family don't understand, you know, what he went through. And that is when I had the feeling that I needed to talk about this. And that's when emailed Richard to say, okay, I think I'm ready. I think you had emailed me
2: maybe a month before. I said, no, I'm never going to do that. That's Never. I'm never going to be able to do this. The next document is one that I I found
1: that broke me a little bit. Um, This is a document that I'm guessing was meant for leaders to make them feel comfortable sending their gay members to a therapist. This again was the 1993 homosexuality and LDS perspective. Members often need professional help from qualified therapists who, quote, I apologize, quote, members often need professional help from qualified therapists who understand and honor gospel principles. When adequate professional help is not available in the ward or stake, an LDS social services agency may be able to provide consultation, therapy, or referral. Many church leaders seem to agree that the professional counselors can play an important role in helping individuals experiencing problems with homosexuality. However, since not all therapists in the community possess personal values consistent with the gospel principles or or with the church's position regarding homosexuality, ecclesiastical leaders will likely be selective in making referrals. And then this is a paragraph that,
2: The church has supported efforts at LDS social services and other consulting professionals to research the issues and to offer a reparative therapy approach which assumes that homosexual behavior can be changed. A therapist who acquire appropriate preparation can counsel individuals who struggle with homosexual problems it can serve as a useful resource to such people
1: and ecclesiastical leaders. When I read Assume the first time, that is for me when I realized <laughs> that Heavenly Father and Christ had nothing to do with this. To do with this. I think during uh, all the research, looking at th- dissertations, the papers. I think I realized at that moment that I was waiting for them to put something in there saying, "We've prayed about this. We fasted about this. This is what Heavenly Father wants."
2: And so, when you read this and see the word "assume," assumes that homosexual behavior can be changed. It was just a very hard pill to swallow. Thankfully, I was in a session with my therapist when this realization hit. The feeling of being
1: spiritual collateral damage had never hit harder than in that moment.
2: The feeling of, we can lose a few to save others. It's still with me. Okay, the next
1: one is going to be, this is not part of the 1993 documents. This is 1996, Jeffrey R. Jensen, Homosexuality, a Psychiatrist's Response to LDS Social Services. Quote, additionally, not a single sexual orientation study addressed the psychological or spiritual damage that,
2: that occurs in the majority of subjects who fail to achieve a change in sexual orientation. Sexual orientation therapies treat, sorry, Sexual
1: sexual reorientation therapies attempt to treat a disorder which doesn't exist using unethical therapeutic techniques which don't work while simply ignoring the damage they can do to the majority of people who fail to change, people who are judged by the failing therapist to be resistant, morally corrupt, unrepentant, or simply weak. I, I often think to myself, I had not come out when I did, had I waited a few years, I could have skipped this. They would have started to realize
2: the suicides. And then I just, I, I wish I had waited. Um, I found another statement that was made years later by one of the BYU psychologists. And this was much later in his career. Quote, as a mental health professional and
1: psychology professor from 1961 until my retirement in 1999, I was among the traditionalists who believed that homosexuality was a disorder and that it could be treated and changed to some degree. I was a professor at Columbia University and Brigham Young University, and my views have carried influence in some circles.
2: I regret being part of the profession. Sorry, I regret being part of a professional, religious, and public culture that marginalized, oh,
1: sorry. and excluded LGBT persons. As a father of two gay sons, and grandfather of a gay grandson, I've been given a personal education that has been painful and enlightening. To the general public, I say, stop, listen, learn, love. To myself, my posterity, my colleagues, my fellow church members, and my political leaders, I say apologize and compensate those of God's children who have been affected by our treatment of them when they should have been embraced, loved. Give them the rightful place in society and in the church so that they may be nurtured and progress in their spiritual, social, and professional lives. We are all children of the same heavenly parents who I believe love and value all of their children, regardless of their sexual orientation, and who grants each of us the same opportunity to receive Jesus Christ's grace, end
2: quote. And he says, compensate my opinion. My last quote is from President Dallin Chokes.
1: All should understand that persons and their family members I apologize, quote, all should understand that persons and their family members struggling with the burden of same-sex attraction are in special need of the love and encouragement. It is a clear responsibility of church members who have signified by covenant their willingness to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, quote. My goals with this were to help members understand a little bit more about the
2: depths some of us were willing to go to to change. the desperation is still there for many.
1: By the the time someone in church comes out to you, they have already been in a war with themselves. It was just hidden. I hope you understand that when you see all the LGBT people that, in your opinion, are strong, faithful members one day and then come out the next and seemingly are a different person,
2: they've been fighting this war much longer than you understand. And so when they do finally come out, there is this sense of relief.
1: I hope families, I hope this helped families who may have had a, a bit of a disconnect with the gay family members in their lives to heal a little, to heal a little, after learning what their loved ones have experienced, especially those in mixed orientation marriages who didn't tell their spouses. During that time frame, many of us were told not to tell you. I know what I was told. And this is what I was told I needed to do, not tell her. Had I married a woman and not told her,
2: it would have been me 100% following my bishop's counsel. But mainly I'm doing this for the men I've ever met, but who
1: share this experience. Wherever you are in your journey, I hope this helps you move forward
2: to place a place of peace with your past, present, and with yourself. Thank you, Adam. I've never been so moved by a podcast guest in a long time. I've never cried so much.
0: I wish I could reflect to you all the feelings of the people that are listening to your podcast and how much they want to hug you, embrace you, thank you, validate your pain and your courage to share your story. there's thousands, I think, feel that way, Adam. No one's done a podcast like this. Um, It's a story that needs to be told. And you told it in a really authentic, graceful way. I learned a lot. (laughs) These are some of the things I wrote down, listeners, like I usually do, is um, just... The word shame, the immense shame that this whole process caused you to feel. Even that it's a sign of selfishness in this journal that you read from. And you talked about burning them someday. And maybe that'll be part of your healing path is get to the point where you can burn them. But the shame that was created because of something outside of your control. Then you said this line, you can't heal without addressing the pain of the past. And I believe that's true individually as an institution of the church. I think to heal from the past, we have to talk about the past and then teach what we taught in the past so that everybody's clear. And you've shared it through your own personal journey, where we are as a church and where we were. Um, but we have to own our past to move forward. We have to talk about this past, and it makes us uncomfortable. and but it's part of our baptism covenants to mourn, bear, and comfort and know the, the journey you went through as an innocent Latter-day Saint. Those journal entries, you know, when you said is, I'm, I can't read my writing here, listeners, as I sometimes say, I'm deviant by nature. No one should feel that. And I recognize that's how you felt because of the quotes. You do a good con job of providing context of why you felt the way you felt. (laughs) Of course you'd feel that way, you know, because that's, you're trusting adults in your life that have experience, I'm using that in air quotes, with how to solve this. And you're obviously very trusting like anybody would be at that age. And so um, it's logical that you would feel the way you feel Um, and that your reward for all of this and your mission, would you become would be heterosexual? Um, I love the grace you gave to at to, at. I love that you quoted what our church leaders said. That's public record. I love that you quoted from the BYU dissertations. That's just public record. Um, my feeling as an active Latter Day Saint is we need to talk about that <laughs> as part of our ability to move forward. So. If some are uncomfortable, I would invite you just to join me and be uncomfortable. Um, You've had to live this. It's almost cost your life. It's okay for the rest of us to be a little uncomfortable with hearing the reality of your life if we're serious about our discipleship as members of the church. A couple times in my life, people have used the term spiritual collateral damage.
2: And to, you know,
0: to our belief that, you know, being heterosexual is, you know, God's plan for everybody or however we And I just recognize the collateral damage that it's been created for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, you know, particularly and how that's not part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like how you separated the church from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't believe it's part of God's will. You know, listeners, I talk about everybody needs to look in the mirror and feel how they're created is intentional. And they can't, straight or queer, can't look in the mirror and feel they're a mistake or something needs to be fixed. And I recognize that that wasn't possible when you were growing up. Um, I appreciate you being honest with your suicidal thoughts and how you found hope and healing. And that experience with your bishop, and I love the way you frame that. Would you like me to marry your daughter or date your daughter? That <laughs> that made it pretty um real for um listeners. And I admire you leaving and staying alive and going. I think you said to I can't I don't want to say any cities, you haven't said publicly, but I think you named the city when you spoke at oh, Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah, I can see that. And I love that you said the suicidal ideation went away. And um I I just I, you the other thing I thought as you spoke is you spoke for all those that died by suicide. Yes. That are part of your story. And you honor them by talking about this. You know, as I become more familiar with the content and read some of that, I'm aware and you were more aware of this of people we've lost to suicide because of conversion therapy, electroshock therapy. And and it sounds like without your desire to keep the Sabbath day, holy that would be you. <laughs> but by Monday morning you were a little better. And then you got out of Provo and you found a supportive community.
2: Yeah, I did. It it's um I just I look back at it. And you know, when I first felt like it was
1: time to go back to church, it wasn't a okay, time to repent and go back to church. It was more of a, okay, they're ready. You know, it felt like it's time to come back. It's um, you know, I'm very thankful. Um,
2: you know, currently I, I say that church is very difficult to go to and you know, I I and it is, it's it's not it, it it is but i go because that's where i feel like
1: i should be And it it's it's painful and lovely at the same time and um i have a very supportive ward i'm not in the closet um you know i'm not running up and down the halls with a rainbow flag but i'm if somebody asks you know it's it's known people know that if, if somebody you know asks who i am or if my wife whatever they, they know they can say nope he's he has a husband and He's not an actual member, but he attends. Um, I I've been very thankful to have uh, bishops too now since I've been back. Um, where you know my current bishop kind of knows. Sometimes I'm calling him bishop by his name, and then sometimes I'm calling him by his first name, and it kind of lets him know where I'm at and if I need him to be not a bishop, not a priest or leader. But you know, it's it's a very clear. I'm not trying to be disrespectful when I call him by his first name say Mark to be safe. Um, but he knows if I, you know, they know kind of where I'm at. And other ward members, it's one of those things where I don't want to um for example, I was called to be the primary pianist. And I was like, I don't think gay people can be in a calling with children. Is that is that has that changed? And they said no, you're you're allowed. And that's a wonderful calling. I love it. It it's um it's after sacrament. And so Hearing little children sing songs about Jesus is a really lovely way to to leave what can be a very tense and stressful sacrament meaning. Cause I never know what somebody's gonna say. I think that's the biggest. It's like, okay, they can get up and say things I've heard in the past. Is that gonna happen again? Um, I'm rambling on again, sorry. But it's I, I'm very thankful for the for the word that I have for the understanding. And if they're not supportive, I've only had one small little Incident in five and a half years, tiny, um, but I think for the most part, if they're not supportive, of understanding, they just tend to, you know, be quiet and leave me alone, which is great. And if they are supportive, that's known. So, um, the one thing I wanted to say about the the electroshock, I, I want to make sure I said this. I blocking all this out already. The '90s versions, you were referred to somebody else. Um, it, it was not through the LDL social services. Um, I just want to make sure that that's clear. I just, I want to be as factual as I can. I'll say it allegedly and my opinion and everything else, because I I can't find the documentation that supports it. Um, I just wanted to make sure that I made that clear. I don't
0: know if I did or not. You've done, I think, a really good job of wanting to be factually accurate um, and also honor your own story Um, in the level of preparation. I've also, this is a credit to you, and also a sign of the pain. I've never you you're a guess that I could just sense the pain of talking about this. And I don't think that's a sign of weakness. I think it helps me understand the pain of what you went through. And I think it's a good thing to talk about the pain you went through. I would think with your current therapist it's a measure of healing to understand that was sexual abuse. And I think this is I just admire you for talking about it. And I recognize the courage it takes. I have the privilege of sitting across from Adam and seeing the pain of him talking about this period of time. And I'm just so sorry um, that this happened to you and that we failed you as an institution. And um, as a Latter-day Saint, I, I think part of my baptism covenants is to honor pain. And to validate pain, and it doesn't mean I don't believe in the church to do that. Those are not two different things. I can hold both, as you are doing. And it just is part of, I think, maturing as a church is to be able to hear these stories and validate these stories and recognize the pain. Um, and I don't just try to dismiss it in any way, like, well, they were doing the best they could, or it was the understanding of the day. My experience is that doesn't helpful for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, when, yeah. What people say is because what happens is it, that goes into your belief system of well, that was when people say, and it's they're being very kind and they're being very loving and they're trying to mourn with those who mourn And I get that, but when I hear things like um, that was the understanding of the day, and and where I go to but, but wait a minute, we're Church Jesus Christ of Christ, Latter Saints. Is supposed to be Christ went to church. Why are we following the, ro- the world? We should maybe be leading the world. And so why, why were, you know, a couple of people said, well, other universities, did it, actually not that many did it, but the 1976 version of the electroshock therapy, the one that is heavily documented, it happened at BYU, you know, they say, but other people, and they're still trying to figure it out, but I'm like, but why don't we, but Christ is leading. Why are we doing what other people are doing? We should be showing them this is the way. And so it, it really affects your testimony of that, of it, how, you know, but but why, you know, if we're price hand touch on this you know it doesn't you know one of the ones that was kind of painful to watch was president Hinckley when he was talking to larry king uh you know he said why and and president i'm paraphrasing president Hinckley said well we don't know why you know we just know that they have a problem and you know we want to help them and even then i remember hearing but just ask you know you're the prophet ask get a clear answer and to not have that Still, at least now it's, the, the tone is much, I think maybe teenagers and people in their twenties now might not think the tone is much softer, but trust me, it's much softer um, than, than what it was. And so that's, I, I go back and look at it and, you know, in the sixties and the, there was one, somebody who said, um, I, I think it was in the fifties or sixties, um, you know, if you're gay, don't come to BYU, we don't want you. Don't yeah. even, you know, step foot on it. You know now, yeah, you can be a BYU and be openly gay. You know, you have to follow the church's standards, and, which is totally fine. But you don't have to actually be in the closet anymore. You, you can. You know, it's just it's so different. And and what affects the the feelings for the church is, but and if they say we weren't ready. I'm like, but if if they say Christ said, hey, you need to be, you need to get ready. This is where we're at. That's where the expectation on my end, and it's not healthy. And I know none of this is healthy, so we should probably stop talking about it. But, you know, what I told you earlier was like where I'm at with church now. I'm going to use an analogy because I love analogies. But I told you it's a really, really bumpy road. And every now and then I have to pull off at a rest station and just, you know, check the tires myself and see if they're too damaged or if I need, if it's too much damage, call in some professionals to you know, help me so I can get back on the road and keep moving forward. And then if I need to pull over, pull over. And so it's just a really hard road. And it's not even one that I want to be on sometimes. Um, but I think for me going to church, I would have never, Well, maybe I would have, but going to church really helped me realize, Hey, you really haven't dealt with a lot of this. You need to, this is This is affecting you in ways that I I didn't even
2: realize. So that's why I keep going and keep wanting to. It's just trying to figure it.
1: I'm just trying to figure out the next steps and the next direction and going or leaving. And it's, there's no easy answer.
0: I think I admire one of the things I think is helpful for listeners is self-aware you are of your own story and boundaries in your own story. So the bumpy road is great. That's great for everybody that's trying to stay engaged in the church that at times has a bumpy road. I love, I'm going to attend church until suicidal thoughts come back. And so that's that to me is a credit to you being self-aware of knowing my boundaries and knowing what's good for me. And and having a relationship with God that you can talk to God, I think, like you did in Provo, when you said it was time to leave Provo and move, and and so I think that's a sign of really wonderful spiritual maturity and recognizing that the church, because you know this firsthand, can't answer every question, and our doctrine is hear Him, and I think you do a good job of just saying I, I'm managing this the best way I can. I love, and I got tears in my eyes multiple times, but when you said I want to go back to church. I just can't imagine you doing that. I can't imagine you walking into the building, sort of the, the source of the trauma, the representation of the trauma. Um, I love that you did that. I, I think, listeners, this is a podcast where we're just honoring all stories. I don't think Adam is saying if if you don't feel like it's time for you to go to church, don't. <laughs> You know, he's not saying make your story his story, but for some it may feel like maybe I can try again. But I love the way you made boundaries in that. You just knew you couldn't interact with anybody. You knew you weren't going to go to the second or third hour. And I just, I could almost imagine you after you went for a while, walking the halls, wondering, could I go in the second hour? And I just, and the courage, I just would love to walk with you in the hall right then and say, what are you thinking, Adam? You wouldn't have told me because I'm, <laughs> but the courage to just sort of walk around the hall and wonder, can I go to second or third hour? And then, I, you know, whoever this bishop is, he ever listens to this podcast to have a priesthood leader and respond the way he did after priesthood leaders respond in unf- really painful ways in your earlier for him to respond like you were transparent with him you didn't pretend to be somebody you weren't you were honest about where you were and who you were married to and and knowing all that his response was to me what the savior would say and the invitation he said you you welcome here
1: and this was during the time when, when the 2015 November policy came out i was it was before it was think that was changed a few months after i came back so at the time you know realizing that you're considered an apostate because you were married was so then when that changed a few months later i'm like okay that helps <laughs> <laughs> no longer considered an apostate because i never felt like one i didn't leave because of a lack of testimony um i never you know i went i, I had an angry face my husband can attest to that yeah yeah, I had a really pain equals anger. <laughs> top eight was not a great time um
2: for me in the church. Uh but you know, it just eventually it, it softened and I was able to come back and so it's again, I have
1: no idea where I'll be in a month. I know that I have or a year. I have a wonderful spouse who's extremely supportive. Um he's come a long way with understanding what it means to have a, a spouse, a spouse who attends church. Um,
2: yeah, he's come a long way. way um, to go! Yeah, he's pretty awesome.
1: I'm glad you've just, got him in your life. Well, you know, I was telling him, uh, I, uh, <laughs> someone was asking, I get a lot of questions with, with what I do, um, you know, marriage advice, like, what's, what's the advice you give? And I tell people, if your spouse is the first person you want to call when something good happens or the first person you want to call when something bad happens, that's a sign of a good marriage. You want your spouse to be the one you want to call first. And taking away the physical intimacy part of it, a marriage is best friends and it's somebody to to, to be with and somebody to call when something great happens or to call when something bad happens. And, it's, you know, my marriage is sacred to me. It's it's something that I want to protect. and. It's just, I prayed before I got married. I got an answer that, yes, this is, and he's been, he's like, we're a great fit. We're very happy. And
2: so to know that my faith says it's, I'm not gonna say evil, but, you uh, know. <laughs> um, but
1: to me, it's it's where I'm supposed to be. And it's,
2: I'm very thankful for that. I don't want that to, to end or change. Um, I want to fight for it and, and protect it and keep it going
1: as it's going. So it's, it, to me, it's just, you know, man, it's not, it's not good for man to be alone. I agree with that. And the person that I'm with just happens to be somebody of the same gender and somebody who's supporting me in my silly things I want to do or a little bit more major things like go back to the church as a non-member
2: gay marriage and man. That's, And it's the complications that come with that. Um,
0: you referenced elder kieran's talk that i just loved love him and he's become an apostle since he gave that talk but i hope our listeners heard i wrote it down you read that multiple times a week and how it's different than an earlier talk you didn't you were so graceful you didn't say the name of the apostle um but i'm aware of the name of the apostle and that talk and and it didn't trigger me at the time. I didn't know any better. But hearing stories of survivors and how that talk, parts of that talk were difficult. And now your other cure and talk is just so helpful. And but to read a talk multiple times a week
1: or listen to it or it it helps. You know, the Miracle of Forgiveness was not a friend to me. That book. Um, they meant again it, when they say that it's early homosexual experience or sexual, you know, is part of what makes you gay. You feel like, well, I'm. Yeah, it happened many times. I was not, it was, it was bad. It was just, there's no way to put it. And so, you know, to read, it's better that you die fighting for your virtue than give it up without a fight. To this day, I'm like, did I fight hard enough on this one? while well, you were four. Did I push back enough on this one? while well, yeah. you were seven. You know, so it's, I have to put that into perspective, but, you know, I love President Kimball, but that's a really,
2: yeah.
1: when you're hearing that at 12, knowing what had happened, you're like, oh, it's my fault.
2: And then seeing that, well, you're, it's just, that was not, a, that was not an easy book. That was not an easy uh, verse. Uh, not, not a verse,
0: but uh, easy chapter. Listeners, I sometimes try to f- look at parallels that have occurred in our church, and I don't know if this is a good road to go down or not, but I Will talks about Blacks not having the priesthood, and that became sort of an assumption. Um, the memoir I read about that from Brigham Young, it wasn't um, the way it was with Joseph Smith. And then once it became the assumption or the this sort of, there's no scripture, there's no revelation that said this is, black shouldn't have the priesthood. It just became sort of the assumption of the day or the doctrine of the day. And then for decades later, we just wrapped doctrine around that. And assumptions and theories, and it became the standing belief of the day. And until we were curious as church leaders and we were open and asking questions, and we had new light and understanding. And and Bruce R. McConkie went to BYU and said, we were speaking with limited understanding. Forget everything we've said about this topic in the past. We were speaking with limited understanding. So there's so I I look at you know, parallels sometimes. And I think the assumption of the day is that not being straight, being gay was not pleasing to God and not a good outcome and something had gone wrong. And there's a backstory with you, Adam, if we can just figure out the backstory, you're really a straight, you know, Latter-day Saint and something's Mm -hmm. gone wrong. And then we start to wrap content around that and supposed research and stories and, you're caught up in the middle of that assumption. There's no scripture in our doctrine and covenants that says this. <laughs> you know, we've said we're all alike unto God. Um, so now I think we're at the feeling this is like being left-handed or having blue eyes. It's just uh, an attribute of you that's. I don't think God is up there going, "Oh no, what went wrong with Adam? He's gay." Right. I think same way. Really, what went wrong with so-and-so, he or she's straight. We're just equal in the sight of God and we're created as intended. And for me, listeners, that doesn't change church doctrine or church policy. It just puts everybody on the same moral footing and takes shame. And we're not doing conversion therapy anymore. Uh, so now, I don't know if yeah. that parallel, if you like it at all, and I don't want to give context to why something like this happens to minimize your pain, but I do just feel like we need more light and understanding in this space. You've you have this perspective of all the changes we've made to get to this point and how much kinder it is, and reminding people that are new to the space that may feel harsh. Well, let me take you back to the 90s, but it gives me hope for the future as we continue to have proximity and ask new questions. And so, those are just some thoughts. I don't know if that's helpful for you or not, or it is.
1: It makes me feel like, um, <clears throat> if we're not teaching the shame to the youth now, they're not going to want to do the therapies. I would have so much rather had somebody sit down and say, okay, this is the situation. These are your options. Let's, you know, let's think about how you want to do this. Like what support you need to either move in with the church or leave, or, you know, what are the options versus stay? And I, you know, again, I, I, I want to make sure everybody understands this. I would have done anything they said happily. I was thrilled when the bishop said there was something that could fix this. And each of the therapists that I went to, I was happy about it. i was like, okay, this is going to be it. You start to get desperate about that 18 month mark. So when you're seeing the different therapists, wherever you move. Um, Cause you don't want to be the 12th. I don't work. want to be the 12th. Yeah. So I would have, I mean, hang upside down by your toenails for 18 months and it'll change. Great. Where's the rafter? You know, oh. that's where you would have been with it. So I think just changing the, what we're telling the youth now, you know, I look at some of the youth in my, my ward and, you know, I just think any one of these people could be hearing the wrong thing that's going to put them um, into this place where I was of, I'll do anything. I'm, I'm that desperate versus the approach now, which I, I hope is what it is. I saw something in the news about, um, uh, again, we've been planning this for a couple of months, but I saw that there was somebody who was doing the the conversion therapy still. I think, you know, one message I would want to leave is parents. If you have a child that comes to you and they say that they're gay or bisexual, whatever it is, um, the church now says it doesn't work. Don't do it. If you find a psychologist or somebody, Oh, I know somebody who's worked with somebody who has success. I'm sorry. Your child's not gonna be that one in a million that changes. That's not the route, the road you want to take with them. Um, figure out, how to you know listen to them? There you go, learn, love them, and you know move forward in a much healthier way. Um, again,
2: I, I don't have to say it. The church says it does not work. It's harmful. Don't just don't do it. It's really great advice,
0: and this podcast I you know, help local leaders, you know, parents, LGBTQ people. It just helps. Um. Claire Dalton is on an episode a couple before you, and she introduced a concept that um, she's a gay Latter-day Saint, um, openly out. um, It's been a part of the CES program, but she talks, I talk about the gathering of Israel, that you're Israel, Adam, and we need to gather you, um, and you're in the same vineyard as, you know, we just haven't gone to that part of the vineyard as much and recognize there's really good fruit there you representing good fruit and you're part of Israel. But she pointed out that to to have a gathering, you first had to have a scattering and um, you've been scattered. Um, And our LGBTQ, you represent that with your story, the literal scattering and the things that you've had to endure your survivor of, of all of this, you know? And so we have as an institution, I hope that's not too harsh, but I, We've scattered you. <laughs> um, and now your bishop, when you walked in that word and you, you know, that's gathering. And I don't know if that's helpful for you, Adam, or listeners, but I sort of think we, as a body of Latter-day Saints, as we're maturing as a church and understanding the space that recognize that we have scattered people our own members that were in the vineyard and were good fruit and created a stronger vineyard. We look at who you are and your contributions to our church and potential contributions and what you're able to do now. But, you know, gathering of Israel is recognizing what we've done to scatter you and what we can do to gather you and strengthen the vineyard. So I don't know if, and the other thing that, you know, when you talk about, you know, I, You know this. This is just for listeners that may be infrequent listeners. Uh, Ben Shalati, a gay Latter-day Saint, who's been a BYU Honor Code officer, said something really helped me early in my allyship. He said, I thought the atonement would make me straight, but what it did is it healed my broken heart. And that was helpful for me just as an ally to recognize, because I would have said to you before I started listening to gay Latter-day Saints, well, it's on you, Adam, Mm -hmm. just like everybody else was telling you, it's on you to be straight. You know, just make more deals with God, go to more sessions. And um, you did everything you were asked to do and then recognize that this isn't changing. So anyway.
1: I have I, no idea what I'll be. And I just, I just don't know. I don't know if I'll continue moving forward or
2: eventually it comes too much and I just stop again. Or I, I, I just,
0: you know, I, I don't know. And my response to that is, and I'm not your bishop or your, (laughs) is I would just say, I trust you, Adam. And I'll walk with you without condition, without transaction as your friend, just like maybe this, some of your friends have done in some of the people in your life. So that's me sort of inviting listeners when someone opens up, just like Adam does. I don't know my future. I don't know where this will take me. But I think our job as a fellow letter is saying, I just trust you and I'll walk with you. And You've got to write your own story and you've got to own it and I'll walk with you. You're really brave, Adam. You're one of the bravest guests I've ever had. And you may not like that language. Um, I am thinking of all the other people that have gone through conversions therapy and and electric sock and, and you represent them. And I think that's a good thing. And those that have died by suicide, I don't, I have to think they're aware of what, who you are and what you're doing. And I think it's, I don't know, this isn't doctrine listeners, but maybe it helps heal them on the other side to know that this is being talked about. And they're still human on the other side and they still have pain in there and need to heal. And so maybe this helps people that we've lost because of what's happened. That's just speculation, listeners. Um, but you're a healer. And the work you're doing in your own personal story and be able to bring hope and perspective to others is really helpful. Anything I've said that you're not quite settled with or you don't quite agree with or anything you want to add, and then we'll close. No, I am uh,
1: I never thought I would be doing this
0: <laughs> podcast
1: ever. I never thought I'd be talking about this publicly.
2: Um, but no. I am. Here um, you
0: are. Take it and, you know. It's the perfect time for you to do this.
1: Uh, now I'm going to go into hiding for the next <laughs> month.
0: We're going to link in the show notes. Um, just check out the show notes for one of the BYU studies. I think we're going to put that in the show notes. And if Adam wants to any, add anything else between when we've recorded that he wants to add in the show notes, we'll do that. And... um just grateful for Adam being on the podcast and anybody that's in your circle that supported you. I think Adam and I are grateful for you for the work you've done to help love Adam and support him. Your husband, if he's listening, I love the way he talks about you, is um, in the context of you've got to, your spouse is the person you should turn to first when on your best days and your worst days. And you have a wonderful, healthy marriage. And I'm glad you have your husband in your life, and I'm glad you're alive. So this is Richard Osler and Adam signing off another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.